Welcome to the latest episode of Global Class, a podcast where we explore the international expansion stories of the world's fastest growing companies and the career journeys of their globally minded leaders. My name is Aaron McDaniel, and I'm here with my co-host, Klaus Vihe. Thanks, Aaron, and welcome to our listeners. In this episode, we're excited to welcome Alessio Elionco, founder and CEO of Pipify, a work management platform that allows companies to streamline and automate business processes. Prior, Alessio was the founder and CEO of Asucero, a local commerce marketplace, and the CEO of JR Consultoria. In our conversation, Alessio talks about the importance of thinking global from the beginning instead of just on the initial market, the importance of prioritizing people first, and building diverse teams with unique perspectives, and also the role of Agile when localizing a business and much, much more. Let's dive into his story. All right, Alessio, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to talk about you and your career experience, about Pipeify and, and some of the things that, that have really changed business with not only automation, but distributed work. So why don't we start by talking a little bit about your background? So as uh, to use an American analogy, Pipeify is not your first rodeo. You've founded other businesses before. You also have background as a consultant. So we'd love to maybe have you start with your career journey and talk about how it started all the way to where we are today. Oh, great. Thanks for the invite, Aaron. So I started my career working in consulting, especially turnarounds. At that time, we managed 14 companies with revenues between 50 and $200 million a year. And I was part of the process excellence practice. So I worked with other Lean Six Sigma green belts and black belts, process specialists. And basically, we work with those portfolio companies to streamline and automate execution, like help companies reduce lead time, improve quality, automate the max of the things they, they could do eventually to help those businesses turn over. So long, long, long story short, I, I used to be a kind of a process nerd. I stay a lot on the customer side of the Pipefy space today, because in order to help those companies automate their workflows and better run their execution, I had to deal with like dozens of different software vendors in the space. All of them, good, great, but at the time, really tech intensive. It required a lot of IT resources and specialized labor in order to go live and do all the change management. And basically, that's how I had the idea of Pipefy. At the time, I didn't want to create like the next gen, no low code workflow process automation platform. I just wanted something more easy, intuitive for non-technical professionals like me that had to improve efficiency of their teams. Basically, that's my personal trajectory and also how it connects with Pipefy's origin. That's awesome. And, and maybe tell us a little bit more about one of your other businesses that you founded, uh, Acceso Zero. Acceso was a marketplace for uh, local services. Imagine Yelp, Expedia, and Groupon, they had a baby. So basically, you could seek for the local merchants and their services, their portfolio of services. And basically, you could compare the reviews in the website and you could purchase online. Not aggressive discounts like the daily deal uh, model where you could get like 70% discount. Because we were a local guide, we were more on the Expedia zone that probably 20, 30% cheaper than in the point of sale. That model was good and really healthy. The company, I run the company independently for five years. We achieved more than 1 million users in Brazil, which at the time was a big thing. But even like cash flow positive, I ended up setting the business to our biggest competitor, which was the Brazilian Yelp, apontador.com. 
it was a good exit, not like F money, I don't need to work anymore forever, but definitely it was a good learning experience. And also after acquisition, because of that experience, I managed to be solo founder of PipeFi and fund the company myself almost like in the first year operating. So it was a good, good journey. That's really cool. Um, I think one of the interesting things, obviously, I've intentionally stalked you before going into this call. So apologies in advance if you see my, my face <laughs> in LinkedIn and so forth, you know, really viewing your profile and so forth. One of the things that I, I sort of learned from you in reviewing some of the previous podcast episodes you've been on is you talk a bit about the difference in mindset compared to back when you built Asacero and then now Pipeify. Can you talk a bit more about how you were thinking about business back then versus also how you built your company right now with Pipeify? It's sort of more of a global, globally oriented type of business that you're developing currently. Uh, that, that's a really good question. Basically, my first business, like, okay, it was an exit. It was cool, technically, paper, but I would say we got crushed. I just lost the timing. Like, we got cash flow positive too fast. The business kind of moved forward well. That kind of created some overconfidence on my side. And I thought, like, ah, I do not need investors. The business is growing well and so on. And basically, then the whole market changed. Yelp launched in Brazil. Two or three local customers raised from big firms like Excel. Then the daily deal website model, they kind of landed in Brazil as well. And then when I realized I was kind of fighting in a red ocean with a lot of indirect competitors fighting for the same customer's budget, I had a quite healthy, good business that eventually one day I'm going to do exactly the same thing again. But at the time, the market just got too crazy. I lost the timing. I lost the momentum. And the reason why I lost the opportunity is because I I'd lost the opportunity for being really aggressive. And I think I, I missed that opportunity. With PipeFi, I decided to, okay, if I'm going to start something again, let's make sure I'm going to be the gorilla in the room. And I'm going to be the industry leader globally. And the company that will be successful across all the markets we decide to operate. And with that in mind, I decided to start globally since day one. But the idea why that happened, it's really funny because actually after I left my first business, one year after acquisition, I worked as a product consultant for Israeli Accelerator called Nestec at the time. And I asked Ayah at the time, the, the CEO, like, hey, how you are so successful and have so many Israeli tech companies? You are such a small market globally. You do not have like a good relationship with other countries and the politics, wars and all those things. So how you are successful? And he said, Alessio, exactly because of that, every typical Israeli entrepreneur, they know they do not have a local market and they need to learn how to be successful since they were. They need to learn how to sell in big developed markets like US or Europe or Asia. And they know also they're going to be the cowboys in those industries. So they need to have a clear product competitive advantage. And because of that, they literally, they raise the bar. They do not just raise the bar in terms of product capabilities since they won, but also they learn how to operate globally since they won. And then in the dinner, he kind of turned to me and said, but now look at you Brazilians. You have a 200 million population. You can kind of get rich and have a good lifestyle business. You can copycat everything that's happening globally. 
you have the bureaucracy, the language barrier, and all those things. So basically, because you have all those defensive barriers, you just think too short term, and you end up missing the big picture. When you wake up and decide to go global, it's too late. Man, when he <laughs> shared that, it landed perfectly on what happened with my, my previous company, literally perfectly. And that's when I said, like, okay, let's start something. This time I'm going to study right globally. I'm going to go to the Bay Area, raise capital from the best investors. And then here I am today, <laughs> basically. That's a really, really cool story. We, we kind of call that jokingly inside the global class here, the large market syndrome, right? Yeah. But we also talk about a concept called an initial market. We talk a bit about depending on the type of market and the market size that you're in, you think uh, about international very differently. And obviously, you being in 200 plus million market, I believe, you kind of think about building your business very differently in the very beginning at the very least. And that's sort of a tendency we see a lot of Brazilian founders have. The same uh, is applied to American companies as well. They tend to go out international very late, late Series C. And so you build your company and your product, your organizational culture around that first market. And then it becomes harder to make that switch to become a global organization. It sounds a bit you know, similar to your journey as well, but then it's interesting that you didn't think very, very differently here the second time around. So I guess my question to you is, one thing is like coming from Brazil over to Silicon Valley and raising funds, et cetera. How does that materialize that, that mindset that you now have in terms of building the company? What do you actually do to make sure you, you build towards that sort of global goal in building, obviously, the global gorilla in the room as you noted a bit earlier. There are a few things that are really important that maybe were shared. The first part is, really depends on the type of solution you sell and your average deal size. If you sell kind of big multi-billion dollar contracts, of course, that dynamic will be different. But if you are a B2C customer or even a B2B solution, but you are more transactional, like eventually you can provide like a self-service experience or a semi-sales-driven organization where you can have a product-led approach, then it changed drastically. Because like before, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, all the market dynamics used to be really local because you had to advertise locally, you had to have a physical presence, you had to kind of knock on the customer door, have some face-to-face -face relationships. And basically, that changed a lot in the last 5, 10 years. Customers are getting more and more and more digital, especially after COVID now. That changed even the playbook. While in the beginning, you could do just like a local traditional approach, thinking local first or region by region. When you see on the digital side, and if you have the product characteristics that would enable that, actually, you can use a completely different playbook. That is, you know, Jeffries Moore uh, crossing the chasm book about like finding the innovators. Imagine how hard it is to find a good market of innovators in Brazil, in Curitiba, where we have 2 million people, Latin small city. So the market's really small. The, my ideal customer profile, it's really limited. But if you expand and you seek for that customer profile globally, and if your product has a type of buyers that they have an online behavior, they are engaged on specific communities, niche communities, they exchange a lot of lessons learned and notes and so on. Sometimes the local factor, it's marginal, it doesn't matter. And if you learn how to create and find those innovators early in the process, 
in the channels they use to engage online, you can have like a global approach. You can be kind of region agnostic much earlier to at least acquire those first customers. We got the first big customers globally, like IBM in Europe, Accenture, Coca-Cola in US. Like we got a lot of really good customers, not because we had like a traditional enterprise sales force, like typical every SaaS product would have, but exactly because of that flywheel. Our product experience, build the relationships, provided the first value. And from there, we were able to engage with those buyers and having a commercial relationship while we were heavily based in Brazil. So that changed a lot. This is really interesting. We we talk about this concept of multiple cultures that companies that are expanding globally have to consider. And we, we talk about two flavors of local culture. There's local market culture, beliefs, decision-making, rituals, whatever it might be in the local culture. And then a subset of that is local business culture, how you would operate a company. And, and in Pipeify's case, how you sell B2B and then how that interacts with company culture. But then there's this fourth culture that we see emerging that we label as community culture that we talk about how it transcends borders and how there are subgroups that have similar beliefs and mindsets that go across, you know, not, not just stopping it at the national borders, and how, because technology has enabled that, it gives companies opportunities. And so we had a previous guest on the podcast, Jennifer, who uh, an executive from Airbnb. And one of the things she's talked about with us before is, is how early on Airbnb looked at, in particular, marathon runners as an initial adopter as they went into different markets. Because whether you're a marathon runner in Brazil or the US or wherever, you have a common vocabulary, a common mindset, viewpoint on things. So very much in line with what you just said, would love to maybe dig in a little bit to see if there are any insights for you, in particular on the enterprise side, you know, Airbnb is a consumer example, but on the enterprise side, we find a lot of companies expanding where they typically focus is they go, okay, our initial market, what companies do we have there that are operating in these other countries? And we're going to go there because we want to sell to their existing customers because they may have the same issue. That's not always the right answer, right? Maybe talking about a few of the concepts I'm throwing out there, community culture and, and Pipeify's growth path, if there is any type of customers you focused on that may be cross-border. Definitely, we had a few lessons learned. Uh, the first one is, depending on the type of problem you solve, literally the localization doesn't matter. Like the way customers need your solution, it will be exactly the same. You can have like a pure global play where customers will be able to benefit exactly from the same structure. Like example, you are on an OKR solution, it's OKRs. Like people consume that solution the same way. There are other type of solutions that eventually you need to complement the last mile because a really good example, sometimes we, we have a lot of that. Depending on the region, the local ecosystem and the integration strategy changes. And in the UC ecosystems that are more matured and sometimes less mature, depending on the region and then the type of team that uses the product. The second lesson learned we had as well is, of course, the more mission critical the solution or the higher the size of the deal of what you sell, there, there, there will be more scrutiny. They want to know if you still want to be, if you still will be around in two weeks from now, if they have like 24 hours, seven days a week support, if you are enterprise grade solution, if you are GDPR compliant or a good example, localization. If you are dealing with European customers, it's ISO 27, 1000 security certification. 
US more SOC 2 oriented. So there are those small nuances that usually on bigger deal size, you're, you're going to see. Sometimes it's more sensitive. But for us, we learned that is every single time we land through the business side, instead of trying to optimize for a big deal, we optimize for customer success. And we try to help the customer to be successful as fast as we can and help them achieve their success criteria in terms of ROI or whatever they are measuring. And from there, we build a relationship and we try to expand across the same buyer for more use cases or across more stakeholders inside organization. This is really important and tricky because especially, of course, every single sales team, they want to close the first million dollar contract. They want to have a big commission. They have a quota. So there's a pressure and sometimes there's a conflict of interest. And if you have a big brand, if you are a global gorilla, if you have like a, a whole building, Market Street or in the Mission Street, like Salesforce, of course, you have a ton of air cover to bid really high and force a customer to do a strong commitment and take risks. But if you are a small, high velocity, nimble startup operating remotely from anywhere, of course, you do not have the same power and you need to learn what's your strategy to land in those accounts, build a relationship, build the trust, and from there, expand and then be a big business. So optimizing for customer success, that's something we learned uh, as well. And it was something really cool. And it's, this is a really important point too. And it's one that we learned in our research. And, and this is one Klaus in particular likes to highlight about, uh, about how you don't want to necessarily go for those huge customers first, because they might not be the best fit in, in, in initially for a market. So we Heard a great story from Slack where the team in Europe focused a lot on attempting to sell Banco Santander. They spent months and months and months and months, and then it ended up that their internal champion left the organization, and it basically left them with no you know, real ability to close the sale. And if they had focused on finding other customers that were easier to close to sort of build that momentum off of and understand the local use cases better, it would have been much more successful. Uh, so I, I know there are a, a ton of things that that we want to talk about as it relates to Pipify and, and, and how that actually relates to things like distributed work and, and other trends. One thing that, that has been really interesting for Klaus and I as we've talked to people is basically the experiences that people who have gravitated toward building globalizations, where they came from and, and things that they had. And we, we talk about this concept that we call being an entrepreneur as an international, sort of building on the agile and, and company mindset, having a cultural mindset, a global-mindedness, cultural curiosity, cultural sensitivity. And we found that that um, a lot of people have had these interesting formative experiences. And to the point you made before, depending on where you're from, it is very different. You know, Klaus is from Denmark, and you were talking about some Israeli uh, executives and startup ecosystem and how they think differently about things. Coming from the US for myself, coming from Brazil, for you, a, a bigger market, it's often not as thought about. But we'd love to hear what formative experiences you had that showed you that there was a world beyond Two million person city that that you know you've been in. In terms of like culture, for me, working for a while like with Israeli entrepreneurs, it was really really interesting. It's like usually the Brazilian slash Latin culture, we care a lot about people and we care about how people feel. We care a lot if you're going to be a good host, if people will feel warm and welcome. We care a lot about people's feelings almost all the time, and because of that, sometimes. Latin people or Brazilians, they do not say 
what they need to say enough or they do not say in a such a clear and straightforward way to generate the urgency sense sometimes you need on the other side to land. And also sometimes we are too sensitive while engaging with other cultures like people from Germany or even Israel that are clearly straightforward, no bullshit. It's a completely different way to engage sometimes and, and solve problems. Especially with Israeli. Israeli ah, that's exactly <laughs> the type of culture I think it's really beneficial for everyone. Do you know that book, Radical Candor, right? About the importance of giving feedback and so on. Basically, mm-hmm. they apply the radical candor model to everything, not just feedback. They have a direct connection between their brain and their mouth. And everything they think, they care, they they are so open. And it's good because it creates a low-cost relationship. You do not need to spend time thinking doing some conspiracy theories about if my boss like me or not, like they're straightforward all the time and do not waste time. So it's really interesting and completely different than the the Brazilian culture in general. That's something remarkable that I even keep reinforcing in Italian PipeFi to make sure we have the same culture. That's really, really cool. So let's dive into that topic, uh, culture in general, right? So uh, in speaking with a lot of the executives for the book, we've heard a lot about culture each strategy for lunch, uh, culture fit each uh, skill set fit, and so forth. And, and I guess, you know, when you talk about the differences in culture between Brazil and Israel, et cetera, you need to find a way to sort of bridge those differences through the values you project or, or are translating or at least communicating within your organization at Pipeify. Again, I, I cheated a bit in advance in kind of listening to one of your podcast episodes where you talk a lot about different types of values that you have in the organization and talk a bit about the honey badgers in terms of the type of profiles and individuals you want to bring in to the company at Piperfire. Can you talk a bit more about how those values then bridge between culture differences and builds a very unique culture that is driven you know, to really push growth in your organization at Piperfire? Of course, like as like a founder in Brazilian, a lot of my personal values and, and my beliefs in terms of how I like engaging with people on a daily basis, strongly influence what are the pillars of what we have as our company's foundation in terms of culture today. But since day one, I wanted to create a global first culture and way of engaging with the peers and, and collaborating. Like we have our values that are Like every other company, we share what's important for us, like moonshot mindset, being people first, the radical candor, like enjoying the ride and so on. But what I cared a lot, especially when we deal with international teams, and you are an international founder, is to truly embrace a global first approach and understand that the company is not Brazilian. It's not like a Bay Area, Silicon Valley-based company. We are truly a global business. Why this is important? I see sometimes a lot of international founders, just because they are from outside the strong ecosystem like Bay Area or whatever, they have a lot of proud. Like, I'm from Denmark, Zendesk. I'm from France. Like, you're going to find Aircall, you know, Olivier and the team. And of course... Just like looking to the hand count, there's that sense of identity about we're going to try to kind of also raise our flag in the world and see that we are a Brazilian tech company or a French tech company and so on. And that's a strong bond element and a strong motivator 
for the founding team. But as you scale up and grow and you start to recruit globally, the team members need to understand that's not the agenda of a typical global team member. They don't care. Like they do not want to create like one of the first big Brazilian tech companies or French or a company from Denmark. They want to have a good job and they want to be happy and satisfy their needs, the things they want to, they aspire personally and professionally. They want to have a good relationship with their work environment and their peers. That's what truly matters. And if you are like a, a global founder, you really need to understand that because if you do not invest in that type of diversity since the beginning, it's like gender diversity. If you have a team with 10 developers, only men from this, with the same background, it will be really hard to recruit a woman with a, a color diverse background. Of course, you can pitch diversity. You can believe and respect diversity. But to drive inclusion, it will be hard anyway. So those foundations you need to see since the beginning. Let's make sure we have a diverse team with different backgrounds, the things the team value and share and discuss in telling the team. You need to incentivize them to have a global first approach and making sure that the region where they have the biggest headcount, it doesn't dictate culturally how the team engage. And even like the type of music you play in your happy hour, you need to take care. That's really, really interesting. I mean, I completely agree in, in terms of the notion of culture and in the way that you think about it. Kind of Piperfy has what we call the global class mindset, right? Global day one and to Aaron's point in our earlier conversation in terms of building a culture that can be universalized or also localized in those local environments and really truly build something that resonates for global workforce and, and sort of appeal to, again, one of Aaron's earlier comments to that new sort of community culture that we see rising in terms of the entrepreneurs out there that are more interested in working in a global organization and working with people that are working in other locations instead of at home in Denmark, sitting side by side next to another Dane. They are out there and it's there's an increasing sort of interest in, in really operating and working in that way. So I find that truly to be fascinating. And so obviously also your culture provides also that guiding light as well for these uh, employees in terms of understanding, okay, how can we act and interact in this work environment? Your values will be will be the way that people make synthesizing in terms of the way that they are interacting and behaving, but also are doing decision-making within your organization as well. So I think they project your, your culture also to the local customer base and partners, et cetera. So they become almost evangelists of that pipe of pie culture as you scale. Having said that, I'd love to learn a bit more about, uh, you talked a bit about the way you see the world in terms of values and culture and so forth. And you mentioned a bit more about the book you read a bit earlier in terms of Radical Kent. I know that's also reflected in your core values. Are there any other sort of previous experiences back in the day that sort of have impacted the way you have formulated one of these core values within the organization at Piperfy? Definitely the people first. After my first acquisition, professionally, it was like a high point of my career. But personally, just because like the culture clash, I, I had a hard time. My car was completely different than me. And I remember waking up 7 a.m. a given day and saying, like, why the hell I'm doing here? Doesn't make any sense. And I remember that I said, like, okay, if I'm going to start a new business, I'm going to respect three 
golden rules. The first one, I would just work with people I admire personally and professionally, not just about how they are as professionals, but human beings as well. Nice people. Second, I would just work with people I trust. It's not that there is a lack of trust, but trust in a such a way that is, I work with my guards now and I feel safe and included in a space where I'm totally comfortable to be who I'm, my personal values, how I'm at home, my hobbies, the things I believe, and so on. I do not need to have a persona at work and care about the things I can or can't say and have a different persona at home or with my friends. I really wanted to create a trust environment where people feel welcome to truly be what they are seeking to be and what they value. And also that we take care of each other and we are supporting each other's success, holistically, not just what we need to do in the business. And third, I would work just with team members that I would have fun and I would enjoy the ride. Because like, of course, when you're starting a business, you're going to go through a lot of pain. You already are running against the status quo and you're trying to prove a different way of doing something. It's not easy, not even cool. It will be 99% of the time execution and solving a lot of tough stuff. And I'm a big believer on the way you choose to react, regardless of the challenge, can have like a huge difference. For me, enjoying that tough ride it was really important as well. And that's why the way I created that people first uh, number one value, it was respecting those three rules. That's cool because, of course, for Naturally, for Brazilians and so on, we are more familiar, close, we've had a lot of type of friendship, so it's easier. But what ends up starting to happen is, depending on the region, it's really, I hear a lot from some team members that I've never heard such a working environment before, and people that work in good companies. So I think this is something that transcends not just like about the cultural value of a specific region like Brazil, but people really value and feel appreciated. And they feel well when team members truly care about each other's success. And when I mean success, not just at work, but even at home as well, and, and, and support each other in those journeys. That's something that it's still by far the most important thing. And with that in mind, and we are quite open with customers and investors as well, is my product number one here is to be the best company someone could dream to work for. As a second priority, the best company a customer could dream to be a customer of. And third, the best company an investor could dream to invest on. Why? All the value created for customers and investors, it's built by the people behind the business. And when you look about the new generation, the outlier professionals that are truly rock stars in their field, they do not care about just money anymore. They care a lot about the type of challenges they are going to be involved. They care a lot about the quality of their peers they are good enough, or if they have a good working relationship, they care a lot that life is not just the things you want to accomplish professionally, but how you deliver those results, if the way you work is aligned to the things you believe. And basically, I'm a big believer. That is, the best professionals, they have a lot of optionality, and they will cherry pick their next employers. And by working to be among the best employers, you're, you're going to get the best professionals. And by doing that type of alignment and being bold about that, you're going to be able to recruit and retain the best talent and not have to bribe your talent just with money or stocks in a hard exchange sometimes. 
to get their, their brains and their hearts while they're working. One thing that's pretty core to one of what we call our four commitments that companies need to make to achieve a successful global scale is around trust. And to another point you made, we found this to be true with our organization because with us, we have in our team people from four different continents, and they're going to look at that work and engagement model differently. And some of our team is from more command and control type business environments. And we've run into some challenges with people when we've hired in those markets because they're very used to being told what the box is and sticking inside of it. And we need people to think more agile and, and be you know take more initiative and things. And so definitely challenges around that. But but ultimately, part of the core of what you're talking about is that empowerment side of things, right? Is really finding ways to, to transcend any local cultures otherwise and find the best people and put them in the best environment so they trust each other and are empowered. One topic that you've been talking about a good amount that I want to dig a little bit deeper into, because I think sometimes there's these misconceptions about it. Uh, talking about this, as you labeled it, a global first approach, which we think is really important, but that doesn't mean being what often gets used the term of being born global. And I think to the nuances, just to highlight a couple of things that you had said around you building the right people and the right team wherever they happen to be, not necessarily just focusing on hiring a team just in Brazil or something along those lines. But I think that some business leaders could misunderstand that to mean that they need to expand their business everywhere on the customer side and enter all of these markets. So there's a difference between being mindful of those things and building the right support so that when you are global, you can support that scale versus attempting to be everywhere. One, one of the previous people that we had interviewed for our book, Scott Coleman, who's an experienced international executive, says that often one of the big key failures companies have is when they don't find product market fit in an initial market and attempt to find product market fit everywhere. And then you go on this endless journey and you never reach it. So all of that as background, talk a little bit about that nuance between building your organization to allow for global scale later versus just attempting to be everywhere at the beginning. There are a few specific nuances about how you operate, like a really good example. If you have team members that are engaged on the customer-facing side of the business, the local awareness and understanding of the radar system needs to be really sensitive and they need to be open-minded and they need to have that superpower to be able to create bonds with whatever the culture is. Way one level down, more tactically. On the, if you have inside sales scene, a transactional B2B enterprise product that costs you, but to, I don't know, $20,000, you're going to be able to fully operate remotely and, 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 and it, it will be fine. But even with that, your professionals, you want to make sure that they won't be locally biased and they have like a global approach on understanding the competitive landscape, the ecosystem, the customer needs, and so on. The most sensitive areas, areas it's the customer-facing marketing teams, especially product marketing, a little bit of demand gen, and so on. Sales, depend on your deal size. If you're a product-led company, yes, you're going to have more flexibility and you can operate remotely from different regions. If you are a traditional B2B enterprise SaaS product or engage with channels because you're deal size, it's likely different. Then you need to have like a local presence to be able to close those deals and lend bigger deal size because they expect to have a local sales force that understand their local needs. It's well connected in the ecosystem. So it's needed. But then as you keep moving forward in the funnel, 
eventually you can have an international approach as well. Like you can have marketing teams remotely, sales team local, depending on the deal size. And then on the customer success side, eventually if there's not professional services, you can have a global distributed team again or support teams. So I think you need to plot the end-to-end customer journey, really analyze how complex is the purchase process and usually how they engage with your solutions if there is more or less human touch. And looking to all those points of relationships, you need to have a clear strategy on understanding. Here, I need a local presence, sometimes even not just your own team, but a good partner network as well. Forward in the funnel, not here, I can run remotely, totally remotely. It's completely local or cultural agnostic and so on. I think that's the best and the more agile approach because of just thinking like, okay, now um, I'm going to Europe and you just copy and paste your org chart, it will be really inefficient. Like, of course, you can be thoughtful and apply a few investments much early and a few other investments much later in the process. I don't know if it answered your question, but that's what we, we learned over time as well. No, I, I think you definitely touched on a few things we wanted to hear. One other topic that we've been been talking about a bit, and I think I think you're uniquely qualified to talk about because uh, th- there's this concept that, that Klaus and I talk about. Uh, you know, the, yes, we talk about mindset and a few of these other more intangible, softer side of things. But in order to truly be successful, reaching global scale, you actually need to set up processes and structures in order to support that piping, if you will, and and you know, Pipeify offers some of that plumbing right, to allow for that or scaffolding. So these momentum builders, these processes that you've set up, uh, you know, obviously your product can help do that for a lot of other organizations to enable distributed work. From a company perspective, what are those structures that Pipeify created that has enabled you to operate at global scale? I think you mean like in terms of the Pipeify's operation or what the impact we... For example, um, what, one thing we talk about is this concept of a, a localization resource team. So a centralized team that really has a a handle on how the business is being localized in different places and can be a a conduit to headquarters so that a local general manager, for example, if she realizes we need to change the product or a feature in some way, instead of for a tech company, she needing to go figure out how to do that with engineering and product, she can go to this team so that she and her team can continue to focus on localizing the business and getting traction in the market instead of having to figure out how to do something at headquarters. One example, there's a concept a lot of companies have had around a playbook that they have that captures best practices to then better allow for scale into additional markets. What are maybe some of those plumbing that has been created with Pipeify that have allowed for your scale? That's really interesting. When we think about releasing a solution, usually we take a few variables into consideration. That is the region to understand the competitive landscape, and then all the ecosystem in the customer tech stack, the, the vertical in terms of department or industry with the specific needs of that space and the average deal size, because it changed that drastically as well, how the, the engagements can, can vary. And with that, we iterate and probably have like a different channel structure. We have a few products that we just sell through the partners network in US, while we have a few products that are full transactional self-service, and we have like a team centralized in Brazil that support all the regions. Why it's important to have those 
understand those premises because the customer needs it will they're going to be different. Here at PipeFi, how we structure that? We evaluate those premises in terms of performance, and we see where we need local, a stronger localization and where we do not need a stronger localization. A really good example, we have a product specifically where the marketing team is based in Brazil, but they just are focused in our go-to market in, in, in US, run and, and the whole demand generation org, but DEs are based in US for, uh, for more than 1,000 employees. And anything that's lower than 1,000 employees, our Latin team covers, which is our commercial team. So we basically, understanding that journey, if we will do it centralized or decentralized, and basically we run that across the regions depending on the, the nature of the product. What we learn, usually product marketing, the customer journey looks really similar and you can do the core offer. And basically what we do is we literally have an agile approach where we A-B test and we split across many channels, regions, and we evaluate, okay, how is this offer performing in this channel? What's the average sales cycle? What's the average conversion rate? What's the average deal size? What's the average cost of acquisition? And also the expansion rate of that given account. It looks that, oh, this is too specific sometimes. Why have such a level of granularity? But it's really important because a really good example, in a few regions, you're going to end up discovering that your product land really small and is more transactional because the ecosystem is not so mature and IT is not so involved. The compliance requirements are lower. So you can be more tr transactional. So the sales cycle will be really fast and the average deal size, it will be small. The same product in US, just because the compliance concerns and also the stakeholders involved, you are exposed to the organization much earlier. So the sales cycle tend to be much longer, four times longer, but the average deal size much bigger as well. Because when IT is involved, they do not just think on a specific problem of a team. With a global, an horizontal solution like PipeFi, they're going to have like, okay, can I green light this product here and use across other teams as well? So they are more thoughtful, but the capture of the value can capture with the account, it's much bigger. And if you do not measure separately and you do not understand those nuances, eventually you can have a false positive or a false negative. You start engaging, you have a transactional motion in a region, and then you start launching the same product in a different region the sales cycle start to be really long and long and long. And you see like, oh, what's happening? It's not working. It's not working. Maybe the stakeholders, they are different. The ACV and the sales cycles, they are going to be completely different. And even the account expansion later. That's what we learn and that's what works for us. So we have the product offer, which is centralized, but we roll out separately and we measure conversion rates, deal sizes, CAC payback all the motions by region because it varies a lot. It's not just marketing here is more or less expensive. That's really, really cool. And I want to switch topic a bit because we're moving a bit towards the end of today's session. And thank you so much for sharing all these insights. Uh, really, really awesome. And look forward to sharing it with the Global Fast community. I want to move into more like the future of business and sort of how you view Pipeify evolve over time and post-pandemic. And Maybe just to give you a little example, I saw an interesting post the other day with Facebook and their leadership team being very, very distributed from 
you know, Mark Zuckerberg uh, hitting the waves in, in Hawaii to Adam Mosari, the head of Instagram, eating lobsters in, on the East Coast, to even, you know, Guy Rosen being in Israel and then the chief growth officer eating tapas in Spain. So we're seeing very much a, a more distributed model, right, where, where the leadership will not be centrally located to Aaron's point earlier in terms of more that central command and control, but being very much distributed moving forward. And you also noted in our earlier conversation, that's something you're you're seeing at Pipeify as well. So I guess I have two questions here. So how do you see your leadership team being uh, operating and, and will they continue to be, to be more in a distributed fashion? I'm assuming yes, but you're going to elaborate on them. And then two, how are you seeing your, your workforce strategy and hiring sort of strategy moving forward, you know, post-pandemic? Will you be focused on sort of hiring more centrally in certain locations or or are you looking at just talent anywhere where they happen to be the best talent entrepreneurs as we call them in, in the global class book any thoughts yes and it's funny because it changed a lot before covid i remember when we raised our seed round our investors when are going to move here the team needs to be based in the bay area your headquarter needs to be market street and so on even like our investors had a joke they said like you know we like engagement with customers with companies that we can take an Uber to go to the board meeting. And, and, and now that changed uh, drastically because if in the past we had to have that local presence in the Bay Area, after COVID, we went full agnostic. We already had a remote first culture, but in between offices, not remote, work from home distributed, but across many offices. And now we are fully remote. And even our leadership in the Bay Area would say that's quite spread now. And they are kind of are everywhere. I think the only thing that you need to care, it's about the time zone. You need to be in the same time zone to be effective. But assuming everyone is online and available to work and be productive under the same window, it's totally fine. It doesn't matter where you are, you are based. And, and in our team, that's exactly the same thing. Sometimes we see a few team members where are you all? I'm Costa Rica here with my family for a week and the guy's working hard 10, 12 hours a day. So it works perfectly fine for us. That's awesome. Well, let's move into the most exciting questions uh, of today. Uh, obviously, I'm biased in that section, but we have one concept called three pieces of advice. And essentially, it is short form you know, answers, not elaborative, just very, very quickly and snappy. And imagine... You're either your house is on fire, you need to get out the door very quickly, or you're coming down the elevator and have to answer these questions very, very fast. So are you ready for the hot seat, as we call it, uh, and answer these questions, Alicia? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Beautiful. What one piece of advice would you give to someone interested in building a career around international business? Uh, meet other international professionals, international entrepreneurs. Uh, you can learn a lot from them and they will help with all their mistakes to so make sure you won't make the same, but also we will open doors, connect you with other professionals with the same profile and that can change your trajectory. Awesome. They can build that empathy and that culture, curiosity and understanding of others in other ecosystems. Definitely. What one piece of advice do you have for a business leader expanding a business to new markets? Do not especially if you are not based in the Bay Area and going international and you are from outside the U.S., is 
try to be agile and have a fast iterative approach and then try to run that org remotely. And as the business demand, start investing more and more locally. You do not have to have the office set up near power station and have like a, a whole infrastructure to kick off and start learning. Actually, the more you delay those big investments, probably you're going to be able to invest more because scarcity helps a lot to accelerate, learn, and make sure you're investing in the right part of the business. We at Global Class talk a bit about you know, doing things minimally in the beginning and a much more iteratively and agile approach, labeled as global agile in the book. Uh, so we completely agree with your point of view when it comes to international expansion. Final question. What one piece of advice would you have for your younger self? My advice for my younger self, it will be be really, really aggressive. People tend to look to where they came from, their family background, their education, and they use all those things as a premise to define where they can be in five or 10 years from now. And this is really powerful, but this, is, this can be really bad as well because you can be a self-fulfilling prophecy for the good and for the bad. Instead of looking to your current state to define the things you aspire, remove all the constraints. And like I heard from an advisor and a mentor once, what's success for you? Okay, success. What's a wild success for you? Professionally, economically, personally, with your health and so on. Imagine that everything happened perfectly, even better than you imagined. What that wild successful scenario is, that's a scenario you should have in mind and keep your behavior and your execution every single day aligned to. Do not look to your constraints, where you came from, where you were born, to decide what are your aspirations and what you're going to do in the future. And I would say that 50% of your success is first allowing yourself to have the chance to be successful and creating those opportunities. And part of that, that's exactly your mental model about how aggressive and how high is your bar in anything you are expecting to do. Awesome. Alessio, thank you so much for your time and all of your insights. I mean, there were, there were so many great things that, that we got a chance to talk about, about the importance of team diversity and, and building a team that, uh, that has different perspectives from different countries and building that foundation from the beginning. A lot of what you talked about was putting people first on the team side, but also on the customer side and really thinking about that end-to-end journey. Uh, the role of agile being very important and for localizing, but but really all the way through to not overdo things at the beginning, but have that iterative approach you talked about. A lot of what we talked about was distributed work. We talked about whether you come from a small or large market and those different perspectives. And to highlight your last thought, uh, quoting uh, Michael Jordan in his acceptance speech into the Basketball Hall of Fame, he said, limits like fears are often just an illusion, not putting limits to things, dreaming big and going for things. So thank you so much. We wish you the best of success as you continue to, to scale out uh, Pipeify globally. And, and we really appreciate your insight. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. I really appreciated the time. And anyone that want to kind of exchange a few notes or anything I could do to help, more than happy to connect on Twitter and all the, the channels as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alicia. Appreciate it. Thank you.